Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Giving a Bleep podcast, a podcast for women and their advocates and allies who are building enterprise that are changing the world for the better. I'm your host, Taniella Evans, and this week I'm joined by my Director of Development, Christopher Thompson. Hey, Chris. Hey, how are you, Tan? Good, good. So excited about this podcast today. Um, we are actually recording from quarantine at the moment, so sorry if the sound is a bit echoey, but we're going to do our best to bring you some great content today. At Women Giving a Bleep, we bring you the most important trends in social impact that may affect you. We give practical advice on how to fund, sustain, and grow a successful nonprofit or social impact venture. And we answer your questions with the help of experts in the field, and also just by being vulnerable about sharing our own experience with you as we build this enterprise. We are on the front lines, just like you. Our disclaimer is that we are not experts. We're figuring this out as we go along. But as women leaders driving this organization that's impacting the lives of over 50,000 people in East Africa, we've won some prestigious grants, fellowships, and got over that magical $1 million hump in annual revenue. We think we have some things to share and some people to bring into this conversation that we hope will help you as well achieve all that you want to achieve with your social impact visions. Um, so today we are talking about how to raise money for your social impact venture or charity. Um, we're going to be mainly focusing today on philanthropic models of fundraising. That's not to say those are the only models, but we just wanted to start out with those. Um, and I also wanted to just really make a note at the start of this, you know, that that fundraising, it's a fact. It is harder for women. Um, I was just reading some research that shows that in the top 50 highest fundraising charities in America, only 18%, one eight, have a female CEO. So that's just really mind blowing. And I know the Female Founders Fund has some really depressing statistics on how much harder it is for women to raise money. Um, but we're going to just share with you today what has worked for us. And I'm really excited to invite Christopher into this conversation. Um, Christopher is an incredible leader in this space. And he has come alongside me about uh, a year ago now to, to help us at NABU. Um, Christopher has an extraordinary uh, career in this fundraising sector. He was executive director at Community Options, where he doubled their revenue from four to nine million in just two years. He's consulted at a range of organizations from health to mentoring to advocacy. So across all those sectors, he gets it. He even built a school in the Philippines, so he's not afraid to kind of get grassroots and raise the funds for a brick and mortar project. And most recently, he was the chief development officer at the Interfaith Center in New York, where he was directly responsible for the sustainability of the organization. And, uh, and that's where I stole him about a year ago from them. Uh, so I'm really excited to bring him into this conversation. He has experience bigger, <laughs> 
to mid-size to small organizations so he feels your fundraising pain whatever stage you're at um and so chris just yeah really excited and thank you for agreeing to do this with me although i guess i pay your salary so you didn't have a choice <laughs> there you go there you go and hello out there to all those that are listening we're gonna have a great time uh talking uh today and just uh you know putting the fun back in fundraising so thank you for having me Taniela. i love that so um let's start you know how the bleep do i fund this um that is the question that we ask ourselves when we set out on this journey it doesn't start with funding right it starts with the vision and that's really really important and we've been talking about that as well a little bit but i think it's also important then comes the practical question of where to get the resources to actually fund the vision the mission that you have um, and today we're going to just talk through five different funding models, philanthropic funding models that you might want to consider as you are starting out. And these are not mutually exclusive funding models. Um, in fact, we basically do all of them at this point altogether. Um, but, you know, it's important to think about where your strengths lie and, um, and to consider that from the outset. So the first one of these areas of the first one of these models, I guess, um, is crowdfunding. Um, kind of brought into vogue, I guess, with Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Crowdfunding is a really cool model of fundraising if you are just starting out. Um, it's really awesome because it reduces the the kind of, I suppose, the risk of going to fundraise from an individual donor who you don't know, a high net worth donor, or writing a grant, because you're essentially asking your friends and family to get behind your idea. And that is at the core of crowdfunding. You know, I often have people say to me, we've actually run a successful uh, crowdfunding campaign, so I'll talk about that. But it's important to note that crowdfunding is not as easy as it looks. <laughs> I just want to say that up front. So at NABU, we actually launched our organization in 2013 with a Kickstarter campaign. And it was an awesome experience. Um, we set out to raise $100,000, which at the time to us seemed like just a crazy amount of money. I'd never raised more than $3,000, you know, for running a marathon before from my friends and family. So it seemed well beyond the range of what we could do. Um, but it was really, really, really hard. Um, and I'm going to post in the show notes of this, the roadmap that I actually used to launch our Kickstarter campaign. Now, I will say that seven years later, there's a lot more options of crowdfunding out there of how to do it and what platforms to use. Um, Kickstarter is challenging because if you don't raise all the money, then, uh, then you don't get any of it. So it kind of creates that, but it also creates a big incentive for your donors to get on board once they see you getting over a certain amount of money, a certain amount of traction. Um, so what I'll say about crowdfunding is it's a huge amount of work. 
Secondly, I think this is good as a model really only for founders or individuals who have a very close network um, that you have not necessarily tapped into before. So for example, if you're a business person, you know, leading, uh, leaving the business community and you've never really tapped that community before for, for funding or for support and they've known you for many, many years and you've done a lot of work together, that could be a good time to think about doing crowdfunding because those people already know you they want you to be successful. And so you can think about crowdfunding really as, you know, kind of friend funding. You know, do you have enough friends in your network to be able to actually fund your vision? Because yes, sometimes crowdfunding campaigns go viral, but the majority of them don't. And so you just need to be able to think about who is in your inner circle that you would um, be able to get support from and then add a little bit extra, you know, that risk factor. Um, and the link that I'm going to post in the show notes shows you how to get uh, earned media and really get out beyond that close group of friends. But that close group of friends is really critical. So in raising our seed funding um, through Kickstarter, we actually tapped into our co-creators network, Isabel Scheinman, who was on the first episode with me. We tapped into her network in New York. And again, that was a network she built over many, many years, being born and raised in New York. And so we just had an incredible community from day one. We hit half of our goal in the first week. We raised the first $50,000. And so from there, we had enough momentum to get us going. So I think if you have enough friends where you kind of can see your pathway to at least 50 to 70% of your goal, then crowdfunding could be the right format for you. Um, so that's what I have to say on crowdfunding. Um, the second model we want to talk about is grant writing. Um, and I'm going to hand over to Chris because you have a lot of experience in grant writing with different organizations. What do you think, Chris? Um, when does the grant writing model work? And when have you see it work, seen it work really well? I think, um, you know, predominantly when you are looking uh, to write a grant or you're at that stage of your organization where you're able to write a grant, you certainly want to have a strong proof of concept that you actually have done the work. It has left the theory stage and you've actually have some data uh, to prove uh, that whatever you're trying to accomplish uh, has already been done and funding will help to either further the development of this initiative or help sustain. Um, mm. Certainly when you're looking at the grants, um, can be scary. Uh, Family Foundation grants are sometimes uh, more of larger proposals, whereas government and federal level grants could be 20 pages long, <laughs> right. sometimes 30. Um, so I think um, when you do see a grant, the first thing that I like to do is really dissect the actual grant, you know, apart from all of the basic information that you're looking at is one, understanding the criteria. Do you actually meet the requirements of this grant? A lot of times in our minds, we can kind of, you know, split hairs and say, yeah, of course we do. But really looking at the actual needs of the foundation or the requirements of the grant and determining if you're a good fit. 
once you uh, decide that you are a good fit, I do a little exercise where I like to actually answer the question out loud as if it was an interview and someone was you know, actually asking this question. And I think I do that because I want to ensure that I can answer the question, one, and two, that my answer is strong. I think when you're writing a grant, it's easy to get off tangent and not really answer the question. And so mm -hmm. I like to ask it out loud and kind of respond to it out loud as if I'm being interviewed. <laughs> um, little quirky practice there. I think um, in addition to that, um, I, I like to um, really put myself in the reader's position, whether that be a program officer, director, or whomever is actually uh, reviewing the, the grant application, I want to put myself in their shoes. So mm -hmm. that means I'm not going to assume that they know who I am. I'm not going to use jargon that only folks inside of the organization would understand. I'm going to really be as direct as possible, giving uh, the reader a scope of who the organization is, what we're trying to solve, you know, what we've done in the past, and how we're going to accomplish it. I think one of the major factors um, that I see now, especially in the grant making world, is your your metrics, your 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 ability to show that you are having impact in your area of interest. Many people um, have a desire to do good, um, but that alone does not um, put you in a position to win grants. You really have to ensure that you have strong data that shows either uh, the impact of your work, um, that shows how you're uh, able to scale with this funding. Um, and then you also would wanna show your uniqueness, your differentiator, your vantage point. Why are you uh, better than the other 100 organizations who are also applying for the same funding? And so just looking at grant writing and that in that manner, I think will help you to get a better understanding of one, if you should apply, when to apply, and then actually the nuts and bolts to an actual grant. And lastly, you want to have good a good writer and a good copywriter. <laughs> Someone <laughs> to ensure that you are you are uh, your, your grammar is what it needs to be. There aren't any you know spelling errors. I think a lot of times, and I've seen this in the past, if organizations. Sometimes you just copy and paste, copy and paste, and, and without even you know reading it over, you might have two paragraphs that are the exact same paragraphs, <laughs> but you press submit, and you're like, oh my gosh. And I say that because I'm guilty of that. <laughs> um, we all are, I think. <laughs> you read it for the 15th time, and you just you can't see it anymore. Exactly, exactly. So having a... a a writer, but then a second, you know, a pair of eyes to definitely help review. And I've seen it work well, where even though you may have a person that's designated to write grants, you certainly work with your your program directors that can kind of give you uh, the insight of, of the actual work that you can then bring to life um, in the application. So, you know, certainly um, grant writing is a way uh, to secure funds. And, you know, you want to just make sure that you are in the best uh, position to win. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. So, you know, for those um, innovators out there, so what I hear you saying basically is, you know, it's good to be a little bit more established, first of all, and I agree with that when it comes to grant writing. At NABU, we started writing grants 
you know, after we had our seed funding from Kickstarter, so after we had that initial boost of funding, we were able to go and do a pilot. And so we had at least a proof of concept to point to when we were writing our grants. Now, there are some granters out there who will fund it from just the idea. Um, so Echoing Green, for example, and I'll add that in the show notes as well. But the majority of grant funders, like Chris said, are looking for at least kind of a proof of concept. So it may be that you start with a crowdfunding campaign or a different campaign, and then grant writing is kind of your phase two of your fundraising. And I think the two things you point out there, you know, criteria and fit. So criteria, are we actually eligible for this grant? And the second being fit. And I like to think about fit in terms of percentage. And if you're not 70% or above a fit for that grant, then don't write the grant because you're probably not going to win it. It's going to be a waste of your time. And the way to assess fit is really to go through the language of what the grantor is saying, what they're looking for, and really diving into that and being super critical. You know, do I actually fit with this mission that this grant funder has put out there in the world? Um, and then I think you're right as well, Chris, around just like you have to have strong writing skills. And we were, you know, an organization at the start. It was just uh, myself and, and Isabel and a couple of others. And, and so, you know, we were writing the majority of grants. So if you're not a strong writer and it's just you, probably not the best model to start with because the writing skills are super important. Or maybe you can find someone else who can take notes as you're writing and write it up for you. But, um, but I think that's important as well. Like play to your strengths. This is your organization. This is your mission that you're putting together. And so you should really Absolutely. playing to your strengths with, with fundraising. Absolutely. And I will say one more thing about writing. You know, I think you definitely want to give the reader the vision, the overall vision, and kind of like a, either a teaser to a movie or um, writing a commentary about last night's dinner. So I can easily submit the ingredients to last night's dinner, which was probably, you know, some warm water and a cup of noodles. But if I describe the savory flavors that melted in my mouth as I consumed my bowl of noodles, then it's a whole different concept as opposed to just the ingredients. So you want to add some flavor to your writing so that you can give the reader a vision of what you're trying to accomplish, why it's so important. Obviously, they, they understand that because they're giving the funding out, but why it's important to you, what the impact is, and what the overall um, goal that you're trying to achieve. Make the reader feel as if they're a part of it already. That's yeah, you're so good at that, Chris. I love your writing. If you are oh, thank not you. on... If you're not on Navi's newsletter, this is a little tiny plug, but just so you can see how Chris writes and how he brings our mission to life, um, you should definitely check that out. Um, but talking of bringing people into the organization, Chris, like the third kind of model that we wanted to talk about was board fundraising. Um, and this can be a really awesome model if you are so fortunate as to have a group of people around you um, that could become your board members um, that also have capacity to give. 
And, um, you know, we talk about in the industry being a general rule that you want your board of directors to be covering the majority of kind of your core operations or what some call problematically overhead. Um, so this would be, you know, your core salaries, perhaps your rent for your office, you know, the, the core functions that you need just to operate as an organization. Um, and that's important as well um, for fundraising because if other funders see your board is giving to your organization um, and helping to cover those costs, it really demonstrates to them that, that people are committed to you and to your mission um, and that their funding can go to growth and scale and not just into you know, the core. Um, and some funders don't mind that, but it's a real stamp of approval if you have your board able to cover some of those uh, funds. I will say at NABU, we didn't always uh, have that as a model. We're now moving towards that in kind of the last 12 months. We had at different times, you know, a chair of the board who was contributing significantly more and really acting kind of as a patron. And then everyone else was not really contributing very much. Um, and then we've had board members kind of stepping in uh, when the organization really needed it. But that culture of philanthropy on the board, I mean, that's just an awesome thing to create. And um, Chris, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your philosophy, philosophy of that and how, to, how to, to have those conversations, right, with board members who are actually giving a lot already just by coming onto your board. How do you really talk to them about giving? Like, what does that conversation look like with, board members who are coming on board. Definitely. So, you know, it's funny, you know, fundraising is, is never easy, uh, regardless of your own capacity or your own environment. It's just never an easy thing to do. When it comes to money, uh, just, there's so much feelings and emotions involved. And so I think, um, you know, certainly approaching your board with that type of relatability and understanding that, yeah, this is not an easy topic, but it's not impossible, right? The first, the, first, uh, the first answer that I normally get when I speak to a board member about raising dollars or raising funds is I don't have any rich friends. And I always say, neither do I. Uh, but we know folks that know folks that know folks, right? And so it's really about getting the mindset out of the responsibility being on the sole individual and instituting more of a give and get culture, right? So if a board member doesn't necessarily have the high net worth that you would like, um, then you would want to work with that individual and equip them on how to look into their network for those that can. Um, and you'd really be surprised in terms of what comes out of those conversations. I typically try to have those kind of conversations on a one-to-one -one basis, you know, because there is a level of uh, privacy when you're discussing such matters, but it really and truly is helping the individual think critically about their network. Um, you know, what fans do they have in their network who just love them and would support whatever, you know, down to what associations or affiliations um, can also uh, become a part of the fundraising experience. And then you want to you equip your board members, um, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really ensuring that your 
partnering with them in determining, you know, what funds are going to be raised, talking about who is going to be asked, helping them draw a map. And a rule of thumb for me is I let the board member lead this process. I'm just there to usher and support because I think, you know, you want to always value your, your board members' um, efforts, time, contributions, and so, and especially network. I think that's the number one hesitation that I see is a lot of individuals, and it's just a human thing, right? You don't want someone coming into your network and messing things up. So <laughs> I kind of allow mm -hmm. the board member to kind of drive the planning and drive the strategy. And I can, you know, incorporate, you know, some of my expertise uh, during that conversation, but they really want to feel in control um, when you're bringing their own um, uh, interests into their actual network. Um, so once you uh, have had that conversation, typically I try to um, help institute this culture at the very beginning, because it's very hard to change culture once it's already embedded, right? So, and you've, you've done that well here at Nabu Taniela and just really helping board members to understand the need to, to shift from uh, being a board member, working to more so helping sustain um, the internal operations. I think you've done that brilliantly. And then, you know, we both witnessed that, you know, that it does take time. Um, and you work with people because you do want to show appreciation for what they've already done. Mm. I think, uh, so yeah, your, your board members are your champions. They are ambassadors. And so 100% participation and giving is just one of those goals that I believe is non-negotiable, right? You want to be able to write only annual report that every single board member has given a gift. Um, in your organization, you want to determine if there's a giving minimum, right? And so if there's a number that is the absolute minimum, then uh, board members need to know that up front, especially when they're coming in as new board members. Uh, you want to ensure that all of these um, fine print items are kind of a part of the board uh, recruitment uh, process. Um, that is very critical. So folks know what they're walking into. Um, but then after you've done all of your all of your cultivation and getting the getting the individual board member prepared is really supporting them, supporting them, listening to their victory stories, listening to their their challenges, helping them to think creatively about how to how to go back into the actual arena of giving. You know, um, mm. the six rights, right? <laughs> Playing by the rules. So fundraising is friend raising. People give to people, so you can sell the the idea all you want, but it's really going to be based on the individual's connection to you. Um, pairs give to pairs. So it's really good that when you do have a board member that does have capacity, chances are their network has capacity also. Um, uh, but but it's the, it's the fundamental rule of thumb that I, that I give to, to everyone who's, who's looking to fundraise is it's about asking the right person for the right amount, for the right thing at the right time, at the right place and in the right way. And those are the six rights that I really lean toward because I think a no is never a no to the actual person. And so that's why I don't take it personal, but I might not have been the right individual for that, for that amount. It may not have been the right time. Maybe it wasn't acting the right way. Maybe it wasn't acting the right place. And so really it's lining up 
these um, different uh, target areas so that you can increase the chances of you actually winning donations. And your board members, again, you want to really build them up so that they're equipped to do this work. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I love that approach of, it's a, it's a gentle approach actually, but it has to be board led, right? And I think mm-hmm. that like, that relationship, for, for me, the relationship with the chair has been absolutely critical. So I work so closely with the chair of NABU, um, Catherine Ritchie. I know you do as well, Chris. And just her leadership in helping us transition from an organization where, yeah, there wasn't really uh, any emphasis on giving. There wasn't that culture of philanthropy to one where everyone, you know, has at least it's, it's in their mind. Everyone's thinking about it and, and thinking about how they can step up. And that was really Catherine's leadership. Um, and that transition, like you said, takes time. For us, it's a, you know, a year process so far to getting to that point where we have a clear kind of vision and commitment from, from board members. Um, but it has to be introduced and led by the board. And also, you know, you mentioned that it has to be, we're just there to support actually what the board members want to do. So an example of that would be um, the the Next Gen Leadership Fund that NABU just created. And this was an idea of one of our board members. Um, she was formerly a member of staff, co-creator Isabel Scheinman, who was in the first episode with me. And she created a model called the Next Gen Leadership Fund, which is a group of young professionals who are coming together to commit uh, a monthly amount personally and then commit also to fundraising a certain amount to support our work in Rwanda. And what was really cool about that is then seeing other board members, you know, matching that fund and really championing it and supporting Isabel so that we were able to close that fund and close, uh, you know, the number of people that we wanted to have in it. And so I think that's really cool when you see other board members supporting each other and kind of coming together around the goal, which is really awesome. So, yeah, I think 100% giving, you know, building that strong relationship with the chair and having them introduce the give-get conversation, having an open conversation with board members about, you know, what the core budget is and how we can build to a place where we can be covering that. Um, and and also just recruit slowly with your board. I think that's really important is there's a tendency to kind of rush to fill it, but really recruit slowly. It's better to have a board member to take your time and to have a board member who has the capacity and willingness to give as well as is passionate about your organization. And those people are out there. So it just takes time to bring them on board. Um, so yeah, I mean, board absolutely. I think, uh, the, the cultivation process is just a constant thing, right? So you're planting the seed and that seed, you want it to grow. So you're constantly nurturing it, right? And so I always say that the best donors are the individuals that are also axing other people to become donors, right? So it's not right. just the actual donation that is, that is the end, but it's, it's like, okay, now this seed has grown up and now it's producing more seeds that will bear more fruit and so that that level of community building is key around donors and so you want to ensure that 
once you do have a donor, um, that you're, you know, showering them with love, stewardship, support, whatever is needed so that they can go out and replicate the same process in terms of bringing more people um, to your cause. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we'll share some of these resources in the show notes. I think it'd be cool to share that right, that right um, principles that you were talking about, Chris. <laughs> oh, the six rights, yep. <laughs> yeah, the six rights. I think that's so awesome and to make sure all those line up. Um, so we'll share that. So let's talk now about the fourth funding model, which is fundraising from smaller donors. So smaller individual donors. So you can think of this, you know, like, I guess, the Bernie Sanders campaign and having, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people giving you small amounts of funding as opposed to a few individuals giving you a large amount. Um, and so, yeah, Chris, tell us about this model. When does this work and how does this work best for organizations as they're fundraising? It's interesting you mentioned uh, the Bernie Sanders model. Definitely some key learnings there. I think mm. when you're looking at small donations, one, you want to define what that is. You want to make uh, the, donation, the donation process as simple as possible, right? And so, you know, if you have a campaign and your, your organization started in, you know, 2020, right? You're going to give... Uh, run a campaign that's like a $20 campaign or a $2 campaign or a $200 campaign or 20, you know, you want to be able to make sure that the donation amounts are kind of defined um, so that you are, because obviously if you're using any platform out there, there is a fee uh, for donations that come through electronically. And so you want to make sure that you're not, um, your fees are not more than the actual donation. Um, but really and truly, it's, 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 it's defining what that donation amount is and how do you define small and subsequently even, you know, even mid to, to large, right? So every organization has to define what that kind of range is, you know, depending on your, your personal budget. But let's say you're looking at small donors. You want to be able to, one, identify what that donation is going to be. Two, I would say, uh, a lot of you have a better chance of getting smaller donations and volume if you have a project or a goal that is attainable in a relatively short amount of time. So that helps to build an urgency because there's a time limit. It definitely demonstrates exactly where the funds are going and how they're going to be used. And I think um, you get some built-in marketing because people want to be a part of a, a winning story so to speak you know and so you know people that do give small donations oftentimes are talking and telling other people about the cause that they're supporting and if you're able to utilize and incorporate social media then it's better um better chances of you helping to spread the word about uh this cause um but you want to use uh, a principle that's that i use is called lia um and the l is for linkage right uh, so you want to identify pockets of people that would share um, the kind of connection to the organization or to you or to the individual you're raising funds uh, with. And so what's the linkage that they have to the actual cause to you or the organization? And then two, you know, I, interest, you know, 
are they are they interested right so if you're for example working on uh an, an initiative in rwanda for example um and yeah you want to hit up the rwanda club at your college or the rwanda association <laughs> if there's such a thing um in your neighborhood because the the interest is already there it's kind of hard to kind of break in uh, to something that folks really don't have any interest in so identifying pockets of people interest groups uh clubs uh affiliations associations that already have that kind of built-in interest um and then and then you know three is the ability right and so when you're looking at small donations you know um depending on what price points there are some people that are going to be included and some that would be excluded right so you want to be able to target the right individuals uh for your small donation campaign and again um i've seen it work best when it's kind of project based all right or, or goal oriented so that you can kind of build a messaging around the campaign that say hey, you know what we're this close all we need is five more people all we need is a hundred more people right and so you kind of are able to then um, build marketing around the urgency of meeting this deadline or achieving this goal or completing this project. And so certainly um, there's, uh, this is definitely a good um, model um, if you are just starting because um, you can kind of create little projects um, based of all the phases and development stages of your cause your organization and so this is a good time to kind of get folks in it's not necessarily as large as the crowdfunding model um but you can determine uh these people for your smaller donation campaign yeah that makes total sense um so let's jump to model five which is high net worth donors the complete other end of the spectrum and talk about what high net worth donors are looking for, Chris, and what is unique about them? Um, and obviously we can't put everyone in the same bucket, right? But what are some of the trends that you've seen with high net worth donors and what they expect from social entrepreneurs um, when they're coming to, to ask for support? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the key thing is that the individual uh, that you're approaching is really interested in the cause, right? And so it's, it's, it's understanding that you uh, are one of many who are trying to champion this particular cause. And so one, similar to um, when you're applying for a grant, you want to be able to show impact. You want to mm -hmm. be able to show what you've, what you've already done uh, and accomplished because one thing about high net worth, they individuals, they do want to be part of a winning team. And mm -hmm. so you want to be able to show that you do have impact. Um, high net worth donors really approach their philanthropic gift as an investment. And so, you know, what is the ROI? How can you demonstrate um, the impact of their actual gift? Will it help you scale? Will it help you sustain? Will it help you um, explore other opportunities um, that your, your organization hasn't really explored before? Um, and so they're definitely looking for ROI. They're definitely looking for legacy, right? Um, and so, 
you know, far after um, they, they are engaged with the organization, will that impact still be felt? Will lives be changed um, because of their uh, contribution? So there's legacy involved as well. Um, but here's what's interesting. A lot of high net worth donors don't want to be the only one <laughs> kind of supporting. It's kind of like, you know, they, you know, the, the question that I often get from high net worth donors is, well, who else is giving? Who else is supporting? <laughs> who do you have on your board? You know, they kind of, they don't want to be the only one. And I get it. You know, you don't want to be responsible for 80% of this organization's uh, capabilities because if you do walk away, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you don't want the failure of the organization to be on you alone. So, you know, yeah, the, uh, that's you know, such I, a good insight into their psychology <laughs> and you have to get into the mind of the donor, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, they're worried about giving to such an amount that you'll become reliant on it. Um, yep. That's a really, really good point as we think about approaching them. So how do we, yep. how do we and overcome that? Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, your communication as to what the strategies are for fundraising for sustainability are going to be key as well. You know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people assume that donors don't want to know about the organization. They give their gift and that's it. That's a small portion. A lot of high net worth donors do want to see and, and be kept in the loop as to what the progress is. Right. And so, you know, bringing, a high net worth donor into the organization a little bit insofar as strategies, uh, prospectus of other, uh, you know, funding sources. Th these kind of things are kind of helpful. Take it like a person who invests in the stock market, right? They don't just put their money in and forget about it. Like they're watching the ticker signs. They're, you know, they're watching uh, the news. They're reading the paper. Uh, they have alerts that tell them how their portfolio is doing. So, you know, take it like that. If a person is making their investment into your organization, then yes, they deserve to be kept in the loop as to what the status is of the organization. If you had to pivot your strategy, you know, what does Q1 look like, Q2, Q3, Q4? You know, especially, you know, talking about these uh, COVID-19 times, um, a lot of uh, organizations assume that people are in crisis mode and they don't want to hear from you. And it's quite the opposite. You know, when, when there's trouble or when there's crises, you have to become the loudest voice. You have to show that you are secure. You have to show that you are able to pivot and maneuver uh, so that you can uh, sustain or even become stronger during these times. And so I think high net worth donors have to be treated with that level of respect. And they'll let you know, hey, I don't want to be on this email or, you know, let's meet separately. They'll let you know. But I think from a stewardship uh perspective this person has invested a certain amount to your organization um they deserved um to be included in communications included in strategy included in uh sustainability methods and just really um treating it like an investment and you know keeping them updated keeping them happy as well <laughs> yeah that's awesome so those are our five funding models. That's all we've got time for. Um, we will put some more resources in the show notes. And, you know, you can reach out to us with questions as well. Um, we are really happy to dive into one of these areas more if you want us to explore it more. So let us know what 
content you're really interested in. We're kind of going to put in some of these how-tos in between interviews with um, different entrepreneurs uh, in our sector. But I think these are helpful as well just to, you know, really talk through what's worked for us. So we hope you find this helpful. Of course, not included in these five funding models is the elusive number six, which is earned revenue. So I think we kind of left that out for this time. Um, but I just want to say that we'll probably do a session particularly on earned revenue. Um, so this is like, how do you earn um, money that's, you know, from um, selling an asset that your organization has? How do you actually generate revenue rather than just um, getting money from philanthropic sources? Uh, for us at NABU, we started this journey just last October as we started to realize that the content that we have at NABU, the content that is created by our creators around the world, is an amazing asset that could have value for an audience in the United States. And so we started to package our content uh, for a US audience as well. And you can find that on our website at, uh, under buybooksnabu.org buy books. Um, and what's been really cool is that as we are selling books in the US, um, it's totally aligned with our mission. It doesn't interfere with our day-to-day -day mission. It actually adds to it because it's core to who we are to be bridging the gap in access to diverse representative mother tongue resources. Um, so I'll just leave you with that as a little thought, but I'd love to dive back into this earned revenue area at some point share a little bit of our journey and um and how to build out that but this has been really awesome thank you so much chris this has been amazing well thank you it was fun it's uh, always great to uh really talk about our own experiences uh laugh at our laugh and learn from our failures <laughs> um and just continue <laughs> to move on you know making fundraising fun and and doable so thank you for having me thank you for joining us for this episode of women giving a bleep you can follow us on our Instagram at nabu.org. You can also check out our amazing blog at nabu.org forward slash news. And finally, we really want to hear from you about what you want us to do in this podcast. Did you enjoy this episode? What else do you want to hear about? So please email me and our team at womengiving at nabu.org. Thank you.